This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Shannon McGuire discusses her latest novel, Once Broken Faith, which is book 10 in the October Day Urban Fantasy series. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot digs into this year's Publishing Industry Salary Survey. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. What's happening over in nonfiction? Nonfiction, let's do it. Uh, so number one, we have number one and two is the exact same title by Glennon Doyle Melton, uh, Love Warrior, a memoir. Uh, she's a best-selling author. And what's interesting about this is one is the Oprah's Book Club. The other one is not. So we have two different versions, both selling more than combined, uh, more than 50,000 copies. Very nice. So yeah. So anyways, kind of, kind of interesting to see two books on top of the bestseller list, both being the same ones. So going down a little bit at number 10, we have a starred review of Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. This is by Margot Lee Shetterly, and she's the founder of the Human Computer Project. We say that she uh, passionately brings to light the important and little-known story of the black women mathematicians hired to work at computers at the uh, Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Virginia, uh, which is uh, – this was uh, NASA's precursor. We say that she Shuttley crafts a narrative that is crucial to understanding subsequent movements for civil rights. A star-studded feature film based on the book is due out late 2016. So that's at number 10. That sounds really exciting. I, know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the trailer for the movie. It looks no, phenomenal. No, I haven't. No. It looks phenomenal. Great. And then we have at number 11, Chase the Lion, If Your Dream Doesn't Scare You, It's Too Small. Uh, and this is a sequel to, this is by uh, Mark uh, Batterson, and this is a sequel to his best-selling In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day, where in this one he invites lion chasers everywhere to chase dreams so impossible that victory demands we face our fears, defy the odds, and hold tight to God. That's from their flap copy. Uh, number 16, we have The Forks Over Knives Family. Every Parent's Guide to Raising Healthy, Happy Kids on a Whole Food Plant-Based Diet by Alana Polday and Matthew Lederman. And this is basing this on the philosophy of the previous book, The Forks Over Knives Plan, which is a whole food plant-based diet, which they believe is the optimum choice a person can make. So we see a few of these books popping up on the bestseller list from time to time. At number 19 by Tom Rinaldi. Excuse me, the red bandana, a life, a choice, a legacy. Rinaldi is an ESPN correspondent who focuses on one of the heroes of the World Trade Center attack. And this is uh, a Wall Street junior associate named uh, Wells Crowther who had joined a fire department and people had known him. He was wearing a red bandana and was saving lives throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the World Trade Centers. In the end, we say that 
All too often, Rinaldi projects anticipatory dread before 9-11, relating that Crowther told a friend, I'm going to be part of something big, as if what happened was somehow predestined. This emphasis on premonition tells readers more about the way humans process tragedy than about Crowther's unquestionable courage and competence. So uh, it's a, a mixed review, but it's uh, on our bestseller list at number 19. And finally, uh, the one I'm going to talk about is at number 23, Dave Barry, talking about my home state, the best period state period ever period a florida man defends his <laughs> homeland uh and, and uh, uh he's from uh miami area i'm from tampa bay but close I, enough I, yeah close enough and uh and uh, he makes a case as to why <laughs> despite all we say and hear in the news about florida and the craziness and zaniness that happens there it is the best state ever and uh fiction what do we got Fiction, we have a new number one. Uh, it's Apprentice in Death by J.D. Robb, also known as Nora Roberts. Number one with a bullet. We gave it a starred review. Uh, it is the 43rd Eve Dallas thriller. These are always right at the top of the list. They rock it up there. Right. Um, and uh, this one, uh, we say, is exceptional. And uh, in this case, three ice skaters are shot dead at Walman Rink in Central Park. Huh. And the weapon used is a tactical rifle with a range up to two miles. So it could be anyone anywhere. Two miles is a long way. And a lot of people. A lot of people. (laughs) And uh, feverish police work manages to identify the killers and the race is on to stop them. We say in our review that Rob is in peak form as she blends intense action and clever twists with a stellar cast headed, of course, by the indomitable Lieutenant Eve Dallas. Mm. So that's at number one with about 26,000 copies sold. Very nice first week out. And number three, we have Razor Girl by Carl Hyassen, the sequel to 2013's Bad Monkey. We say it's breezy and enjoyable, uh, like many of Hyassen's books. It's set in Florida, and in this case, a Hollywood talent agent is driving from Miami to Key West to keep an eye on a reality TV show star when his rental car is rear-ended by a crash scam artist. Mm. And uh, there's a kidnapping and a riot because that's the sort of thing that happens. And uh, add in a few Gambian pouched rats, a New Jersey mobster, a businessman selling stolen sand, and reprehensible neighbors. Readers will be hoping, our review says, that Yancey and the other quirky denizens of Hyacinth, Florida will soon be back for another screwball adventure. So two books on the bestseller list. List, uh, dealing with Florida. It's a sign. It's a sign. Perhaps Carl might uh, weigh in on uh, Dave Barry's uh, 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 thought. Well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, the, the guy who decides that the best thing to do with Florida is um, write some fictional riots there might not agree with yeah, the best state ever. Uh, anyway, they uh, announced the three hundred thousand copy first printing. Wow. Um, very impressive. And uh, so far, on its first week out, it sold about fifteen thousand of those. Uh, very respectable showing. Uh, number seven is Here I Am by Jonathan Safran Foer. Uh, we gave this a starred review and said uh, it's an intensely imagined and richly rewarding novel, a teeming saga of members of a family that is uh, a Jewish family that is partly in the U.S. and partly in the Middle East yeah. and contending with domestic troubles that are compounded when uh, an earthquake spreads catastrophic damage among the Arab states in Israel. And uh, we said that uh, throughout the book, Four drops in zingers of dialogue, leavening his melancholy assessments of the loneliness of human relationships and a world riven by ethnic hatred. And number 11, we have Downfall, a Brady novel of suspense by J.A. Jantz, the 17th novel featuring Arizona Sheriff Joanna Brady 
Um, she is pregnant. She's facing an election campaign and her mother and stepfather just died in a road accident. And she also has to cope with the discovery of two women's bodies at the base of a local mountain. And uh, the action races to a dramatic confrontation between Joanna and the killer who has been hiding in plain sight. So uh, that's probably one for series fans, but obviously the series has plenty of fans. Right. And number 12, just below that, A Gentleman in Moscow by Emmer Tolls. And uh, House Arrest has never been so charming, we say in our review, as it is in Tolls' second novel, following Rules of Civility. And this one is an engaging 30-year saga set almost entirely inside the Metropole, Moscow's most luxurious hotel. And uh, we say that the central character's long transformation occurs against a lightly sketched background of upheaval, repression, and war, and gently but dauntlessly, like his protagonist, Tolls is determined to chart the course of the individual. Mm. And uh, finally, down near uh, the bottom at number 15, Manitou Canyon by William Kent Kruger. And uh, we call this one a little more uneven. It's the 15th Cork O'Connor thriller. And uh, in this case, uh, it's full of references to Ojibwe culture in Canada and uh, northern Minnesota. And uh, there's an extraordinary sense of place that provides color and texture, but deliberate pacing and an anticlimactic conclusion undercut an intriguing setup and the plot's inherent tension. So that one is probably strictly for the fans. And that's what we've got on the fiction list. All right. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Shauna McGuire tells us how she manages to write a million words a minute, or very close to that. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Seanan McGuire on the line. Her new book is Once Broken Faith. Hello, Seanan. Glad you could join us. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is the 10th book in the October Day Urban Fantasy series. So tell us, who is Toby Day at the start of the series, and who is she now? Well, at the start of the series, she's a very large goldfish, um, literally. And uh, at this point, she has thumbs. So I think that's some good character development. I enjoy having a main <laughs> character with thumbs. Uh, really, though, at the beginning, she is a, uh, a clinically depressed outcast from both the human and fairy worlds. She's had everything she ever loved taken away and destroyed. And now, 10 books in, she's actually in a relatively emotionally healthy place. Uh, has friends, allies, things to do, and thumbs. So... So so there's a lot of evolution, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, uh, this particular installment in the murder mystery. Who, who's been killed and how? Uh, so many people have been killed. I, I really believe that every murder is better when it comes in courses. Uh, you should kill as many people as possible to get your point across. In this case, the Toby Day series has been going on for quite a while. I mean, it's, we're on book 10, which is just stunning to me. And that means that actions have consequences. Well, the book before this one, Toby sort of accidentally deposed a king. Uh, so we're now having the big conclave where all of the continuing kings, everyone that's still in charge in her part of North America, has come together to discuss what this means and what the consequences are going to be. And then someone says, well, I've got a target rich environment and starts murdering monarchs. 
So you have a known kingbreaker locked in a large building full of dead kings. It's not going to go over very well. So obviously Toby needs to try to solve the mystery um, before her own head ends up on a pike, which seems to be uh, a peril that she is often in. True. Um, she, she has a talent for pissing people off, uh, which I appreciate. She is not a protagonist who's ever learned to get along well with the other children. Could you uh, just briefly describe for our listeners the world that you've created? T- tell us physically where, where, what, what they're inhabiting. So the Toby Day series is a fairly classical urban fantasy setup in that it posits a magical world existing alongside and parallel to our own. In this case, all of the old stories of the Fae, uh, they're all true in a certain light. Uh, it's sort of like saying that Xena Warrior Princess is an accurate depiction of life in ancient Greece. So Toby's world is there. It's parallel to ours. It's always been there. And for the most part, the Fae are kind of in hiding. They're trying to avoid too much interaction with humans because they don't really like us very much. And, and they don't appreciate the way that we kill them uh, or take their stuff or, or generally get on their nerves. Toby is a changeling. Now, in this context, um, that means that she's someone who had one fae parent and one human parent. So she's kind of stranded between those two worlds. She has certain talents that a human wouldn't have, uh, but she can't tell other humans about the fae. So she looks a little flighty. She looks like she does not really care about people because she disappears with no warning. Uh, From the Fae perspective, she's extremely underpowered. Her magic isn't very good. And also she has this silly tendency to age and will eventually die. And they don't really get that. So she's kind of skirting that edge between the two worlds, trying to make them get along, trying not to accidentally betray one or the other. Who are some of the antagonists that she's facing uh, in yeah, not just the uh, mysterious murderer of kings who's uh, trying to set her up here, but um, through the larger series. Through the larger series, uh, it's it's a little difficult because you start getting into weird spoiler territory. Um, Fair through enough. the larger series, she has a great talent for pissing off monarchs, uh, mostly because she did grow up in the human world and we're we're not big on kings and queens anymore uh, at least not in san francisco where she lives so they'll say listen to me and she'll say why uh and then it's it's disastrous uh she deals with a lot of issues with the human world as well uh, she disappeared for 14 years i wasn't kidding when i said she was a fish at the start of the series and uh, people don't tend to like it when you return from a 14 year unsolved missing persons case and refuse to explain where you've been Um, She's also dealing with some of the most powerful monsters that her version of fairy has to offer with the firstborn children of Oberon, Mab, and Titania, uh, most of whom are not very thrilled to have this upstart changeling running around breaking stuff. So it's it's entertaining. Um, Her greatest antagonists are not yet revealed. Uh, We're playing a very long game, which is a delight for me and a frustration for everyone else. So when you say a very long game about... Uh, a series that's already 10 books in. How long are we talking? Well, I'm currently under contract through book 15. And um, if I am able to keep my sales up and my publisher interested, that will take us to the end of one of the acts. Oh, my goodness. I'm not saying how many acts there are because I'm pretty sure I would have things thrown at me. So we're talking some very large number of books that you already have at least sketched out. 
Mm -hmm. Now, I'm always two books from the exit. Uh, DAW, which is my publisher, if, if they said tomorrow, you know what, we love you, but these books aren't selling, we can't continue the contract, uh, I would be able to get to a satisfying conclusion. I've been very, very meticulous about that. Uh, so I'm not concerned about being stranded with the story unfinished. I'm just concerned about having to leave portions of it that I really want to tell untold. So this is a very character focused series and your, uh, your books in general tend to be really tightly zoomed in on one particular person. What are the pros and cons of doing things that way? Well, the big pro of doing things that way is you can withhold information without being dishonest. I don't know what the weather is like in New York right now. I have no reason to know that I'm sitting in my house in the Pacific Northwest. You don't know what the weather is like outside my window. And that's really convenient. I can write this scene from my perspective and never need to say what the weather is like where you are. You don't have to have the time or the interest in telling me that a tornado is coming. So I can set up surprises that don't require me as the author to lie. Um, that does also mean that type first can lead to laziness. Um, you can hide things that didn't need to be hidden. I have to be careful of that. Zooming out, moving to a more ensemble plotting pace, and I have written a couple of third-person things. I'm getting more comfortable with that. You have the luxury of knowing everything. You can wander around. You can show different perspectives. You're not in that tight, stuck zoom. The disadvantage is readers will frequently assume the characters they are following, uh, as I said before, they just assume they're not that smart if they don't know something the reader knows. Mm. And with third person, because the reader is getting all of this information that is denied to the protagonists, you start sometimes getting that horror movie effect where people are shouting, no, don't open that door. There's bad stuff behind that door. Well, the character has no way of knowing that. The character looks at the door and it has a big sign that says, please come in. And they don't know that they're existing in a world where there are candy witches in the forest yet. So which mythologies are you drawing on for the Toby Day series? There's a there's a lot that's woven in there. The Toby Day series is almost entirely Western and Eastern European based. Um, there's a little bit of the Asias, but everything else I've, I've pretty much left off to one side. Um, part of that is that the setup for the Toby Day world um, holds that the only supernatural things are the Fae. They, they are all that exist. And there are areas where you can work that in, even though it's technically a different set of folkloric tropes. You could say, here's how it connects to fairy, and it's fine. Then there are other areas where you would literally be taking someone's religion and making it a part of your fantasy world. And I'm not comfortable doing that. And for this book in particular, what are what are some of the, the references and the resonances? Uh, we've got a whole lot of the Irish running around. We've we've got generally the entirety of the British Isles running around. You've got Tuath Dedanan, you've got Dunya Shi, uh, Tilith Tig. You've got all of the various fey animals, uh, the Kate Shi, the Kushi, um, Candila. I don't think we went Greek, but I did go Italian because there are Folletti running around. I went to the University of California, Berkeley for a dual major in folklore and herpetology. Uh, so basically, there's a lot of snakes and a lot of fairy tales in almost everything I do. Uh, tell us a little more about maybe uh, some of your secondary characters in the book and what they're, uh, what they're doing, their involvement. Uh, well, you've got Tybalt, who is our local king of cats. That's drawing off of uh, the old British 
you know, you, the cats see a funeral in the street. I'm the king of cats now, uh, folk tales. And he is Toby's boyfriend uh, at this point. Took quite a few books to get there. And, and he's mostly just trying to impress on the other nobility that he's a noble too and they need to not be jerks to him or to his fiancée. Uh, you've got Toby's squire, Quentin, who is a Dunyashi. They're illusionists and blood workers. And he mostly wants Toby to live long enough for him to graduate from knighthood. Uh, and then Arden, who is the queen of California, essentially. She's actually the queen of Northern California. California. She just took the job very recently. And uh, she'd like everyone to just leave is is her main goal. Like, let's get this taken care of. Let's get this over with so that I can go back to reading and not thinking about you people. Um, Arden is fun because up until two books ago, she was working at Borderlands Books in San Francisco, which is a real place. And uh, I just did a book event there this past weekend. They're, they're really great people. And it turned out that Alan Beats, who owns the store, had years ago, years before I even met them, said that the first author who wrote Borderlands into a book, he would take them out for a very nice steak dinner. And I was the first author. So he took me out for a very nice steak dinner. Uh, I appreciate that in a bookstore. We've actually, we've had Alan on the show. Um, he's been a, a wonderful guest. So I like having that little connection there too. I didn't know that that bet existed. That's delightful. <laughs> Neither did I until I won it. <laughs> so uh, one of the other influences on the series is Shakespeare. Tell us a little bit about that. I really love Shakespeare. I, I had an aunt who was kind of obsessively into experimental child psychology uh, and one of the things that she held as an absolute conviction was that children learn things are hard from the way adults talk about them, but that if left to their own devices, every child will figure out for themselves whether a thing is hard or easy. Uh, and she would use me and my cousins as experimental uh, subjects without telling our parents, which is bad. And don't do that to other people's kids. One of her theories was that Shakespeare is actually really easy for children because children are still learning words. They're used to looking at a sentence and not knowing half the words. Uh, and she started me off before kindergarten by saying, okay, you're, you're going to kindergarten now. Uh, they're going to expect you to be able to count to 10. Can you count to 10? Yes. They're going to expect you to be able to spell your name. Can you spell your name? Yes. They're going to expect you to be able to write a simple poem. Can you write a poem? Can you do rhymes? Yeah, I can do rhymes. Okay, well, we're gonna, I'm going to teach you the easiest kind of poem there is. It's called a sonnet. <laughs> All you have to do is count to ten. If you really break a Shakespearean sonnet down and you're not too obsessively worried about the iambic pentameter, it really is just count to ten 14 times. So she sat down and we spent an entire weekend learning how to write sonnets. And she read me a bunch of sonnets and we talked about what they meant. And I went to school and two weeks in, in fact, they did say, and now we're going to write poetry. And uh, I wrote a sonnet <laughs> about my cat and got my first parent-teacher conference and my first plagiarism accusation. Uh, because apparently someone somewhere that had a cat named Princess had written a lot of sonnets about her. My teacher was just sure. This made Shakespeare incredibly powerful and incredibly forbidden gotcha. because it could get me in trouble with the teacher and make my mom have to come to school and defend me. <laughs> 
And so I really was that obnoxious kid in elementary school that would try to do book reports on Hamlet. Not because I really wanted to, because I was showing off for the teacher. Um, and this just kept bleeding into everything. So when I hit Toby, they say every character has a cert, has something that they took from their author. That was that, that initial point of relatability so that you could latch onto them. And for me with Toby, it was that she really loves Shakespeare. She just has this ridiculous affection for Shakespeare. Uh, so she uses it for magical spells. All of the books have titles from Shakespeare. Um, everything connects back to Shakespeare. Tybalt is an enormous Shakespeare nerd. Um, who actually, you know, was alive in that time period and knew Shakespeare and knew a bunch of the men. They weren't super friends. He was more of a fanboy. Uh, but it's great fun to, to have someone from that time period who's going, what do you people mean? Shakespeare is serious and scholarly. Do you understand how many dick jokes are in that play? We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Seanan McGuire, author of Once Broken Faith, the latest book in the October Day series. Uh, so place is very important to your books. Tell us a little bit more about Toby's San Francisco, which has really kind of become a character in its own right. Toby lives and mostly works in uh, the city of San Francisco on the mortal side of the city and in the surrounding Fay uh, Demnesis. And what's funny is I initially set the books in San Francisco because I hated San Francisco so much. I had to commute to it to work from the East Bay, and I wanted to learn to love it. So I set it up as Toby's favorite place in the world uh, to make myself spend time learning things about it. And San Francisco is amazing. I, I mean, any any old city is amazing, really, uh, because they're full of things that you don't learn unless you go looking for them. But the more I've looked at San Francisco, the more it's just, it's this fascinating place. It's got so much history that even people who live there or work there don't necessarily know because uh, it's all, it's all hidden. It's all tucked away. It's all irrelevant to daily life, but you are standing on top of these layers. Now I know that, that you're in New York. Uh, which is an even a much older city. It's kind of like saying to someone from London, oh, San Francisco is so old. They kind of pat you on the head and go, yes, dear. Uh, but for the West Coast, San Francisco is an incredibly aged city. Mm. And uh, it, it's nice. And Toby's San Francisco is a little bit in amber because you, you've added in the aspect of the Fae, uh, who are preservationists in their own weird way. They like things not to change. And that, that kind of means that I can keep things that aren't necessarily there um, in the real world anymore. Uh, Borderlands, again, a couple years ago, was faced with the possibility that they were going to have to close. And at that point, I had already written them into the series. And so I wound up talking to Alan. Uh, and he agreed that, you know what, in Toby's world, they would find a way to stay open. So even if the physical bookstore closed, it would always exist there. And that's kind of what Toby San Francisco has become for me. It's a preservation of things that are in the best version of San Francisco. 
Well, I'm curious, uh, what is for you the best version of San Francisco and what is it other than the commute that um, has made you dislike San Francisco and what is the San Francisco you want to preserve? Well, I learned to love San Francisco. Toby helped with me with that a lot. Um, I didn't like it because I am from the East Bay uh, originally. I'm from a small town called Concord and uh, it's at the foot of a very large mountain, Mount Diablo. Living there, the the best comparison I can give to you is it's sort of like living in Jersey City and working in Manhattan. Anytime you say, I, I'm having a party, do you want to come over? Wouldn't it be entertaining to do this? People who live in Brooklyn, who live further away from work than you do, will act like you're asking them to ford some kind of river and fight a wolf. Mm. Um, I stay with friends in Jersey City every time I come to New York. And I'll be starting at uh, the Penguin offices, which are literally 10 minutes from where I'm staying. And we'll ask someone who is commuting in from Brooklyn if they want to come over for dinner. And they'll say, no, no, it's too far. You should come to my place. (laughs) And they genuinely believe that Brooklyn is closer and more convenient (laughs) because they're part of the big city. San Francisco, everything happened there, but no one that you met there was ever willing to come visit because it was intrinsically just that much better than your hometown. Uh, so I had sort of small town, I hate you. Um, and then the more I, I wandered San Francisco and looked through San Francisco, the more I found to love there. I do think that we're having issues right now in the Bay Area with folks that are coming in for for work, but also for a romantic idea of what the city is and not for the actuality of what the city is. Mm. And San Francisco is a little bit like London, is a little bit like Manhattan, is a little bit like any large city in that it's a culture, it's a community, it's a series of neighborhoods with their own unique flair, with their own unique ideas about things. It's exhausting having strangers come to your hometown and criticize it for not being exactly what they decided it was going to be. Mm. Uh, And as the gentrification has been happening in San Francisco, The middle class got forced out of San Francisco, which means they moved to Oakland. This forced the middle class out of Oakland, and they moved to my hometown. Uh, I spent the last five years that I was there listening to people who hated it, who hated everything about Concord, because it wasn't San Francisco, complain about stuff that the city could never change. It's so hot here. It's so vile here. Why is there no culture? Why isn't there this? Why isn't there that? And they would go back to San Francisco for all of their entertainment, not try to build any culture in Concord, while pricing people who had lived there for their entire lives out. It's exhausting. Gentrification is exhausting. People hating your home for being your home is exhausting. And um, that's actually a lot of why I've recently relocated to the Pacific Northwest. I just couldn't take it anymore. So how has that shift affected your writing about San Francisco? Well, I've never lived in San Francisco, so as long as I go back pretty frequently to visit, I think we'll be fine. Toby's not relocating. Um, She is not a person who would ever consider that. Um, I haven't finished a Toby book since moving because I literally moved two months ago. Um, So it will be interesting to write my first wholly remote, not even in the Bay Area, Toby book. Um, I don't think it's going to be a big problem. I think it's just going to be a small adjustment. Two months is um, 
And given your uh, prodigious output, it doesn't seem like it takes you that much longer than that to write a book. But uh, that that may just be the outside perspective. You've got the Toby Day series, the Encrypted series, the books you write as Mira Grant. You've just got a new one of those coming out, too. Um, you're doing a bunch of novellas and other novels and other mm -hmm. Other worlds, you're a musician, you travel to a lot of conventions, you're incredibly active on social media, and you have some enormous and extremely demanding cats. Uh, how do you do it? Well, a lot of it is scheduling. I mean, everything is, is very meticulously scheduled and planned out. It doesn't take me much more than two months to write a book, but it wasn't Toby's turn. Mm -hmm. So uh, also, I kind of, because I knew the move was coming, I busted my butt and wrote above word count every day for six months to get myself a buffer. Uh, so I took almost an entire month off. Um, which was not fun for anyone around me. But but really, a lot of it is is scheduling and prioritization. You have to decide whether you want a book tomorrow or a social life today. And there mm. is no universal right choice. I have very good friends that I love dearly who write one book to my five. And... Even if we pretend for a moment that there is never any quality difference, that, that we're just having a completely level playing field, every book is exactly the same as every other book, that doesn't make either of us better or worse than the other. You know, they are making other choices. They're having children. They're going on adventures that I might look at wistfully, but at the end of the day, I'd rather stay home and finish another book. Um. And yeah, it, it's all down to, to choices and prioritization and knowing what is healthy for you. Like I stopped disclosing what I consider to be a, da a reasonable daily word count because I received some private email from people who were beating themselves up, having heard on a podcast or whatnot. Oh my gosh, Seanan writes this many words a day. I can't do that. I'm worthless. You're not worthless. You're just different. So that is is a lot of it is having trained to go very fast and having made choices that allow me to prioritize going fast i have cats but i don't have kids even demanding cats you can shut them out of your room if you have to uh i do social media but i don't do social outside my house that often so i want to talk a little bit about your encrypted series which okay. uh, which which combines ballroom dancing which i really enjoy and uh, monster hunting and set in new york city how does the different setting shape those books well they're not the encrypted books are not actually set in new york city consistently um they're more of a family affair so in order to stay interesting and not have to come up with another situation where the same main character could go through 10 books worth of crap, uh, the encrypted books changes narrators every couple of volumes mm. as we move through different members of this family. So the first two are set in New York. Uh, and I had to do a lot of research and make a lot of calls to friends in New York to confirm, okay, is this here? Is that there? Uh, and learned things I had, I had no idea about. And that setting is great because it's very, very arboreal. Like New York, you can Spider-Man in New York. You cannot Spider-Man in San Francisco. It doesn't work. So tell, tell, uh, us, tell us what you mean by that, just to give us the, the visual sense. Um, well, if you think about a Spider-Man movie, you always have those great visuals of Spider-Man himself 
whipping across the rooftops and using his web spinners to just swing wildly and freely. You can't do that in most cities. Um, there's too much space between the buildings. You would plummet to your death and not be a very entertaining hero anymore because you would be a smear. And that's not fun to read about. Uh, in New York, if you're in the right neighborhood, I talked to some of your local free runners and parkourists, and, and they're like, yeah, of course, you can totally cross the city without touching the ground. They'll demonstrate. It's amazing. You have a level of up and down in New York that we don't really have much of anywhere else in the country. Uh, it's a different tempo. It's a different speed. I am very fortunate in that I have spent a lot of time in New York. I have good friends there that have guest rooms. And that helped. I, I do think that it's important to spend time in a city before setting a book there, if at all possible, um, which is a slightly privileged statement. Like, I recognize I'm lucky I have friends uh, in that space. But it's also a really good way to have the feel of the city even halfway right. And Encrypted is, is just a delight because it is slightly less depressing than Toby. Um, so I tend to switch off, which I'm working on for the sake of my own mental health. And uh, speaking of somewhat grim books, you write post-apocalyptic zombie fiction under the name Mira Grant. And yep. uh, your latest book in the series is Feedback, and it's going to revisit the events of the first book from a different perspective. So you're, you're sort of writing fan fiction of your own fiction. Not quite. Um, licensed fiction is not fan fiction. Uh, what I'm writing is a different angle. Um, if you remember, did you ever see a film called Cloverfield? Uh, I haven't, but I know of it. Yeah, there's a point in Cloverfield where our main characters are running away and they turn around and they see someone else with a camera who has also been filming the destruction of New York City. And this is this is my Cloverfield moment. You know, there was someone else with a camera on the ground. I love fanfic. I have been writing fanfic my entire life. I really my entire life. My earliest stories when I was like five were about me going off to have adventures in Ponyland with the My Little Ponies. And it's super important and super relevant. But the main difference between this and writing fanfic is that this is part of the canon. Um, this is something that everyone gets to be stuck with. You can ignore it if you want. But it's harder to ignore and is going to be more relevant to some folks, whether it should be or not, uh, than straight up thick. So give us a sense of what's going on in, uh, in that book and well, that series. In Feed, uh, we followed a crew of bloggers who had mostly replaced the mainstream media after people lost faith in the mainstream media for denying the existence of the zombie apocalypse. Uh, we followed them through the presidential election as they followed the Republican candidate, Peter Ryman, to see what would happen. And bad stuff happened. Uh, really bad stuff happened. Feedback is following the crew of bloggers that are assigned to track the motions of the Democratic candidate. So they're following a different candidate through the same election. There is overlap of events. I stuck very, very tightly to the timeline. So it is it is one to one day to day. And that was in some ways very hampering. You know, you can't you can't pull something that would have been so big that the characters in feed would have heard about it. But it was in other ways extremely freeing because you've got this very tight timeline. How can you subvert it? How can you play with it um, in feedback? 
They follow their candidate. They find out what they're going to find out. And what they find is so bad that they get a standalone book while the other team got a trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) So it it sounds almost like, to go back to writing a sonnet, you get to play around within this very constricted form and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Structured poetry is amazing because the structure, the limits themselves force you to be more creative. This is my structured poem of a book. Uh, And it was just a delight to write. It made me incredibly happy. I had a really good time. Um, I also, I I named my main character, who is an expatriate Irish lesbian, after my goddaughter. And her parents just looked at me for a while and then shook their heads and walked away. Uh, So that's always a delight. We've been talking with John and McGuire. You can find her book, Once Broken Faith, and her many, many, many other books in stores <laughs> right now. Sean, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about this year's salary survey results, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about PW's annual survey of publishing salaries. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing very well. It is very nice to have you here. So we do this survey every year. How many years have we been going now? I think it's coming up on 20. Yeah. It's certainly one of our more uh, popular features that we do every year and uh, because it's you know we do a little more than salaries we take that and we take the temperature of what some people thinking about some different industry issues but what's starting with with the numbers the rank and file of the publishing industry seemed to do a little better last year that's 2015 always nice uh the average raise was about three percent um 2014 it was about two and a half percent well the thing that jumped out at me at, at the first glance of it was Maybe somewhat incredibly, in 2014, about a quarter of the people who responded didn't even get a raise. Mm. Uh, but in 2015, that was down to 15%. Right. So it seems like you know people across the board are, are doing a little bit better. Um, so that that salary raise uh, brought the average salary, the median salary, up to about $66,000 okay. um, last year. So and that's for that's for which level? Uh, that's those are that's everything across the board. Okay. Um, yeah, there certainly are you know big uh, differences depending on, on where you work. Right. Um, but that's all. I stayed the same pretty constantly. So I think we might have mentioned this last year. <laughs> if you really want to make money in publishing. Be in the management side of things. Mm. Um, You know, the average salary for uh, somebody in the executive ranks in the management side was about one hundred twenty-five thousand last year. Again, this cuts across, you know, all all types of publishers. So it's it's a ballpark, but you know, I think it gives you a good indication. And then if you look at the the top lines for some of the other ones, uh, average salary in sales and marketing was ninety-six thousand. The editorial side was about ninety thousand. And operations in production was about seventy thousand. Okay. So again, that takes in that's going from top editor to right, editorial right, assistant. Right. So, right. Got yes, it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was uh, like again. I think there was some encouragement and that things are getting better. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's hope for next year. Maybe the raises will be even better. And uh, there's still a big gender gap and a big racial disparity in who's in publishing and who gets paid what. 
Well, that's true, Rose. I mean, last, I think it was three years ago now, we, we asked our first uh, racial question, I think, a uh, question in terms of, I don't know why we didn't do it before. <laughs> Could you just identify, you know, your race? And it came back, I think the first one was 87% white. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2014, it came back 89%. And uh, for 2015, for this year, it came back at uh, 88%. So there wasn't much much progress in diversifying. Obviously, the topic has been uh, one hotly talked about over the last several years. And some of the respondents we do ask, do you think strides have been made or any progress been made in diversifying the workforce? Um, about a third of the people thought, well, at least there have been some attempts made. And... It's. I think it's worth noting that the more optimistic uh, viewpoint comes from the white folks, and the, now not too much progress has been made comes from the minority mm-hmm. camp. Uh, there was more encouragement, though, from both uh, um, whites and minorities in terms of how they think publishing more diverse titles has done. And there, over half in both camps thought that they had been publishing at least some, a little bit more titles that might appeal to to a broader base of people. That's good to know. Yeah. And uh, and what about that gender gap? Well, yeah, because that's, yeah, that's a good point. Because since we asked that question about uh, ethnicity, uh, the gender gap has sort of been overlooked. Mm-hmm. But this year we focused on it again. Um, because it's not much has changed. Mm. Um and uh, the average salary for a man last year was 96000 and for a woman it was 61000 Now, but a note of caution, that doesn't really compare. Mark Rotella is an editor at Simon & Schuster, and Rose Fox is an editor at, Simon, at Random House, and they both have the same amount of experience and all that, and Mark is making $30,000 more. Right. This is just, again, it cuts across all areas mm-hmm. and there's two basic reasons why this this gap exists and it's it's existed ever since I started doing this um, more men are in management than any other segment of the industry mm-hmm. even though women are still the minor- majority by 54 to 46 right. there's still a lot more men there and management is again the highest paying part of the industry. And men uh, work longer there. I mean, their experience average 20 years, and for women, the average is only 12. So they put those two things things together, and that accounts for for some of the some of the disparity. I see. So of the people who took the survey, the men were there. The men registered as there having worked in the industry longer. Right. The average the experience took- is about 20 years. Got it. Okay. Uh, we had about, I think it was 43% of men said they had been worked there at least 20 years. And the number was about 25% for women. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, as we all know, women are by far the, the largest group in... Um, in the industry, about seventy-four right. percent of respondents right. were women, and that number has always been in the mid mid right. seventies right. ever since we've been doing it. Right. So, what that sounds like to me is that women um, leave after twelve years because they don't have the management opportunities that would help them earn the big salaries. But I, I mean, you could, you could look at it that way. It's it's interesting. I mean, we were on a I think a panel last year kind of speculating about some of the real causes for this. I mean, some could leave or take part-time jobs to raise family. But when you brought that up, I mean, we do ask, you know, what are your top complaints about your job? 
And the number one complaint is always salary. But this was divided pretty dramatically in that 60% of women, that was their top complaint was salary. For men, it was only about 43%. Hmm. So obviously, I do think it's starting to resonate more and more about, hey, how come either you know we're not having that given the opportunity even to make the money we, we think we should be making. Right. Right. And that can lead to people leaving for other industries where they might feel they can do better. Right. Yes. The satisfaction level was higher for men mm-hmm. than for women. Um, so it's something that, you know, I think needs to be addressed a little more. I remember uh, there was a time when People would hold on to, to, to jobs or stay in the same job in book publishing for a while. But in recent years, we've seen just a lot of changes. What is the feeling? How, did we uh, uh, rate job security? Uh, we always rate job security, Mark. <laughs> um, well, this year, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's two things that you mentioned. Um, ever since the recession is over, uh, things have started getting better. Um, job security is, is pretty stable. Um, so we had 26% this year thought they were, felt very secure and 53% thought at least somewhat secure. So that's, so that's good. I mean, that's up of in 2012, the number was 19% very secure and 52%, uh, somewhat secure. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, uh, about eight percentage point increase over those three or four years. So that's not bad. Um, I put you, there is a lot of switching of houses. We all know editors go, you know, where they get better paycheck is that's, you know, perfectly understandable. But again, another trend that appears true year after year is that a lot of people expect to be working at their same company in a couple of years. You always ask, where do you think you'll be Mm -hmm. two or three years from now? And it's, between 55 and 60% think they'll be in the same company. And of those, about half of those people think they'll be in the same job. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something that it's reality. And lack of advancement, you know, is one of the top three complaints uh, about the jobs in the industry. Right. Any other uh, particularly notable trends that you wanted to focus on? Well, this year we actually introduced something new. As some of your listeners may know, starting December 1st, a new uh, Department of Labor regulations come into effect Mm -hmm. that um, for employees who earn $47,000 a year and work salaried employees and work more than 40 hours, they'll be eligible for overtime. Now, there is a regulation on the books now, but the threshold is only about $23,000. So this is, you know, it's a huge jump, a, a huge jump. So it it could include, a, it should include a lot more employees who are who are eligible. So we asked, we threw that out there and said, you know, what do you think's good? We asked two questions of managers: How are you going to do this? How are you? And we asked people: It's going to affect. What do you think? Um, so the managers came back um, with some interesting answers. We gave them some options, and almost half said that they think they're going to limit the hours. Mm. Um, you know, so once you work to the 40 hours, they're going to try to knock you off there. But uh, about 35%, maybe a little bit more, said they would pay the overtime. So, and, and they could pick more than one option. So there were some others down the road. But I think it, it, 
sort of puts a lie to what some of the critics of this new regulation said that, you know, they'll be cutting jobs left and right, you know, they'll be moving more full-time people to part-time to try to get around it. Um, we've saw very little of that. I think mm. 2% said they might have to cut some jobs. Right. Um, so that really doesn't seem to be um, something that's really, really bubbling up. Right. And, uh, and the employees themselves... Then I'm really not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, we did talk to a couple of folks at some of the bigger houses, and they said, well, you know, we haven't told anybody yet because it's still a few months away. Right. Um, about half thought they would probably get some benefit from it. So, um, But the mo most of them are either unsure or they don't really think, you know, they're going to gain much from it. Right. Well, it sounds like a useful thing to look at for the next couple of years and see how the implementation plays out and whether it makes any kind of big difference in uh, what people are actually getting paid. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it might. I mean, there are, it's not quite as cut and dry as if you, if you make less than 47,000, you know, you qualify. There are exemptions that uh, companies can use, but there are the same exemptions that there now. Right. Um, you know, one reason we had looked at it is because, you know, publishing is pretty legendary for, young editorial assistants spending every waking hour reading right. manuscripts. Right. Um, so we did ask that, and they said, well, um, if somebody's been given a, the task to read the manuscripts and it goes over the time, they would pay for them. But if somebody who like just likes to read all these books to discover the <laughs> next uh, great novelist on their own time... And that's that's something that you know wouldn't really qualify. Wow. So there's lots of there's gray there's some gray areas, but like some people kept pointing out to us that this is not a new regulation. It's just that the threshold has it's gone way higher. up, and you'll have to, you know certainly be more employees you know taking part of it. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jim. It's always good to have you here, and uh, we'll keep an eye out for this in this week's issue. Yeah. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Jim. Take care, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delicious author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 